Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. All right. Hello and welcome to Skylit. We have a new episode today with an interview between me, Maddie Gobo, the events manager here at Skylight Books, and Angie Kim, author of Miracle Creek. Uh, We're really excited to have Angie on the podcast today. Um, I'm going to just read her intro so you can get to know her a little bit, and then she will start us off um, talking about her book. Angie Kim is the author of the national bestseller Miracle Creek, named a best book of the year by Time, The Washington Post, Kirkus, Real Simple, Library Journal, The Today Show, Amazon, and Hudson Booksellers, and a Good Morning America hot summer read. Kim is one of Variety Magazine's 10 storytellers to watch and has written for Vogue, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Glamour, Salon, and Slate. She moved from Seoul, uh, Seoul, Korea to Baltimore as a preteen and attended Stanford University and Harvard Law School, where she was an editor of the Harvard Law Review. A former trial lawyer, she now lives in Northern Virginia with her husband and three sons and is at work on her next novel. Hello, Angie. Hi, Maddie. How are you? I'm so good. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to do this. I want to give you a little uh, shout out. You just won an Edgar Award for Best First Novel. Congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, that happened this past week, I think. Um, so it's been a very heady and fun time. Awesome. Well, you want to start us off with a little introduction to your book? Oh, sure. So uh, Miracle Creek is my debut novel, and it's a literary courtroom drama about a Korean immigrant family and a young single mother who's on trial for murdering her eight-year-old autistic son. So at the center of my novel are Young and Pak Yu, um, who are Korean immigrants who came to America to make a better life for themselves and for their daughter, Mary. And they settle in a small rural Virginia town, Miracle Creek, and operate something called a miracle submarine, which is a pressurized chamber for hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which is a real thing, HBOT. It's an experimental treatment for conditions like autism, cerebral palsy, and infertility, and Lyme disease. And damaged cells need oxygen to heal. So the theory is that deep penetration of extra oxygen can result in faster healing and regrowth. And all goes well until one day with six people sealed inside, someone we think deliberately sets a fire by the oxygen tank, which explodes, killing two people. So in one sense, Miracle Creek is a thriller of sorts. Um, It's a mystery. The readers become jurors as the murder trial uncovers secrets 
from that night to find out who set the fire and how and why. But more than the mystery, we explore the lives of these characters, the youth, and the patients and their mothers who were in the Miracle Submarine that night. And we see the sacrifices and the desperation even that come with special needs parenting and immigrant life in rural America. So I'm gonna read from maybe like the first three paragraphs or so of the novel. The Incident, Miracle Creek, Virginia, Tuesday, August 26, 2008. My husband asked me to lie, not a big lie, he probably didn't even consider it a lie, and neither did I at first. It was such a small thing what he wanted. The police had just released the protesters, and while he stepped out to make sure they weren't coming back, I was to sit in his chair, cover for him, the way co-workers do. As a matter of course, the way we ourselves used to at the grocery store, while I ate or he smoked. But as he took his seat, I bumped against the desk and the certificate above it went slightly crooked as if to remind me that this wasn't a regular business, that there was a reason he'd never left me in charge before. Hawk reached over me to straighten the frame, his eyes on the English lettering, Hawk U, Miracle Submarine LLC, Certified Hyperbaric Technician. He said, eyes still on the certificate as if talking to it, not to me. Everything's done. The patients are sealed in. The oxygen's on. You just have to sit here. He looked at me. That's it. But if something goes wrong and what could go wrong, Hawk said, his voice forceful like a command. I'll be right back and they won't buzz you. Nothing will happen. He walked away as if that was the end of the matter. But at the doorway, he looked back at me. Nothing will happen, he said again, softer. It sounded like a plea. As soon as the barn door banged shut, I wanted to scream that he was crazy to expect nothing to go wrong on this day, of all days, when so much had gone wrong. The protesters, their sabotage plan, the resulting power outage, the police. Did he think so much had already happened that nothing more could? But life doesn't work like that. Tragedies don't inoculate you against further tragedies and misfortune doesn't get sprinkled out in fair proportion. Bad things get hurled at you in clumps and batches, unmanageable and messy. How could he not know that after everything we'd been through? Thank you, Angie. Oh, thank you. Um, I wanna kind of start off by grounding our listeners in space and time. Um, could you tell us where you are right now and kind of what's around you, what you see out your window? <laughs> sure. So I am in my um, bedroom and it's very, very messy. So I see an unmade bed. <laughs> um, I heard during my readings uh, a phone ring, which I, I'm sort of surprised because I thought I had the ringer off, but you know, things like this are happening these days. And I am, and I don't really see anything out the window because um, I have curtains over them, but um, it's sort of a dreary day. And we are um, in the middle of a town called Great Falls, Virginia. And right outside the window, if I did have my curtains open, I would actually see this gorgeous view of the Blue Ridge Mountains because we have this 
we're very high up on a hill. And so you can see all the way like into, you know, like 150 miles or 200 miles. Or I don't even know what it is. Um, you can see sort of three blue ridges in the distance. And that's where the sun sets. So, um, and I'm also right outside my writing nook, which is literally a closet. It's like such a small closet. It's not, it's like four by five. It's like half the size of Harry Potter's cupboard. And that's <laughs> where I write. And it's windowless. It's like the smallest space that I could find in my house. And I just like writing in that space. So there you go. <laughs> that's where you I am. Of, you kind of have your own hyperbaric writing chamber. Oh, I like that. Oh, Maddie, that's good. That's great. I love it. Yes. Um, well, maybe that's a good way to start. So this book is sure. profoundly autobiographical for you, right? Can you tell us a, a little bit about where it started? Sure. Um, so this being my first novel, and it's definitely the first novel I've even tried to write, you know, and um, they say that you put a lot of yourself into your first books, and that's definitely the case for me here. Um, so there are really three strands of my life that came together for this novel, and it was almost like, since I, it was my first novel, and I think that as a relatively new writer, I started writing in my 40s. I sort of doubted that I could actually do it at all. And I sort of thought, okay, I better put everything <laughs> into this novel that I possibly can, because, you know, who knows if I'm ever going to even finish. It was one of those things. And, um, and, and it ended up somehow working. So the one strand of my life that's really important to me and that I've written a lot about, especially in um, personal essays and such, is uh, my experience immigrating to the U.S. from Korea um, as an 11-year-old. And so a lot of that experience and uh, coming to a place where I didn't speak the language and going from someone who feels relatively grounded in the culture and smart and has friends to someone who doesn't understand anything that's going on around them. That was being, you know, in middle school of all things. So that was a really traumatic time and seeing the same thing happen to my parents. So a lot of that experience is in my novel. Um, and then another um, part of my, my uh, life that sort of came together for this book um, is the whole trials uh, aspect of it. Um, so I, my first career, so being a writer is my fifth career. <laughs> and my first career is actually being a trial lawyer. And I hated everything about being a lawyer with the exception of actually being in the courtroom. So I loved being in the courtroom. I loved like objecting and I loved, you know, trying to trap witnesses and their lies and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and that was really, really fun for me to revisit. And um, it's not something that I really necessarily set out to put into my novel when I started writing. But the more I thought about sort of how we get at the mystery angle of what happened that night, it just sort of came to me that that would be a good way to do it, not necessarily because of my background, but because having done that work, I've seen sort of how things sort of heat up um, and how uh, things just twist and, you know, conflicts can really come into focus in a courtroom. 
in a way that's really, I think, compelling dramatically. Um, and then the third strand of my life that sort of came together for this is this whole weird HBOT angle, um, the hyperbaric oxygen therapy thing. So I did that uh, with one of my kids. I have three boys. And all three of my boys are fine now, but they all had medical issues as babies and, and um, toddlers. And uh, one of my kids um, needed HBOT um, for ulcerative colitis that just wasn't responding to any standard treatment. So we decided to try this weird thing called HBOT that a friend of mine found for me online. And um, in doing that, it was really such a, a weird experience of being sort of sealed in with a number of other families, um, all of whom have uh, kids with differing degrees of medical issues and special needs. And it was really, it was almost like a, being in a confessional for hours at a time every single day. Um, and it was such a such an intense experience that um, I wasn't a writer at that time, but years later when I became a writer and I started thinking about writing a novel, I immediately knew this had to be the setting for this novel. Um, so yeah, so those three strands sort of came together. And even though I haven't had anything like what's happening in Miracle Creek happen, there are definitely all of those strands that are sort of like all woven throughout. Mm. So did they all sort of, did you, did you assemble them at the beginning, all three together, or did they kind of come piece by piece, and then you figured out at one point you had to connect them all up? You know, um, it was actually a friend of mine sitting, we, I was sitting at an independent bookstore here in D.C., my local one, Politics and Prose, um, and uh, there's a cafe downstairs, and I was meeting with one of my friends, uh, in my writing group, and I was I, I was actually really taken with the HBOT element. So I thought it was going to be a story about the HBOT, and I wasn't I, I didn't know at that time that it was going to be a child story. At that time, I thought maybe in the beginning I would have everybody meet up in the beginning of the novel, and then maybe the ending would be the explosion, um, and everything would sort of be building up to that. I, I wasn't sure yet. It was very very early days, and I was just getting to know the characters. And I was telling my friends that how I really wanted to maybe for my second novel work on, you know, this Korean immigrant story, maybe set in downtown Baltimore, which is where my parents had a grocery store and there were lots of gang, uh, gangs and my dad was shot once. So I was thinking about putting sort of that um, for my second novel. And he sort of said, uh, why don't you put them together? Why don't you have the Korean immigrant family be the owners of this HBOT thing? And I was like, but, uh, and I was like, what that? And he said, um, because you explained this to me, how uh, my dad is actually, he in, back in Korea, he was an acupuncturist. And, um, and he was very into things like that. And that this is like a very Korean thing, like infrared saunas and HBOT centers and things like that. And he was like, so even though that wasn't your experience, why not, you know, this isn't like a memoir. Why don't you just have the combine those two things together? And the more I thought about it, at first I thought it was going to be too much, but then the more I thought about it, the parenting sacrifices that are in both of these 
parent families' lives, I think, are really similar in so many ways. Like when you are giving up your entire life, your family, your friends, your language to go to a different continent, a different country, um, and you're really doing that for your child or your children, I think that involves so much sacrifice and so much of a willingness to give your own life and to sort of change what you think of as normal life. And I think the same dynamic is really present when you're dealing with kids with medical issues or um, special needs, because especially, you know, if there are um, more dire situations, either medically or just in terms of quality of life, I've seen these parents and I've lived it myself where you just put your life on hold and life as you know it and the way that you define it, sort of like it's happening now with our entire society um, with a quarantine, but you just put your life on hold and you just have to give up your I thought your preconceived notions of what you thought your life was going to be like. And I feel like I thought, how interesting. So we can actually, if I put that into one novel, into one story, then I can explore the different facets of that um, and sort of compare and contrast and, you know, do all of those interesting things and have the parents be, you know, thinking of this as well as you normally, you know, as you would if this were in your life. So yeah, so so that's why I ended up sort of putting it together, and it ended up, I think, working out well. Um, but I, I definitely had the idea before I actually started drafting that all three of these elements were going to be in the novel. But it took me a while to get there. So. I love I love hearing stories about how authors come to understand the kind of hidden connections between the things they're already interested in. Um, and I think it, it does totally make sense. The more that you think about these three seemingly disparate elements of this novel, they all reflect back into each other in these really interesting ways. And I think I, I said this when we were doing our little preliminary chat, but um, I, I liked thinking about the hyperbaric chamber and the courtroom as these two similarly pressurized spaces. Um, and I think, you know, the experience of immigration is similar, that, that you're in this, like you said, this, this new country you don't understand, there's an enormous amount of pressure to adapt to it um, and, to, and to kind of like come to an understanding and, and it's not always so easy. Um, could you talk a little bit about kind of that, the, the feeling of pressure in this novel and, and um, how that drives the plot along? Yeah, and Maddie, I have to say, hats off to you. I, I really, I have done, like seriously, I've done hundreds of these, um, you know, interviews, book clubs, discussions, like everything, and nobody has brought this up. And I've never thought of it myself. And I think it's brilliant. Um, I love this idea that you, because I've said in interviews, which, and you were telling me that you'd read some of them where I described this environment to be, the submarine, the HBOT uh, chamber as a crucible. And, and it is, and I've talked a lot about how to meet the physical crucible and that you are sealed in this space together in this very closely confined, dark confessional chamber um, with other people. 
and it's also an emotional crucible just because you know of all the emotions that are percolating and you know if something does go wrong there's it's just so heightened and there's so much tension and there are kids with anxiety inside and I certainly experienced this myself when I was doing the HVAT um, you know there are kids who get so upset that they are banging their heads against the chamber walls they um, do fecal smearing as uh, an OCD um, tick and, or behavior and um, so all of that sort of stuff but but then you brilliantly came in and said you know the courtroom is a crucible of sorts which is so obvious because of course you know in the original crucible of the novel of the play um you know the witch trial was the crucible or the town was too but still um so, and I can't believe that like nobody has ever said that to me and I've never thought of it myself. Okay, but in any case, <laughs> all right, so I love that. And I'm gonna totally use that. I'm gonna steal that from you and use it Please from now on. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, but I, I love the idea of, um, the, I, I think to me, The Miracle Submarine, which actually the original title of my novel was The Miracle Submarine. Um, and uh, rather than Miracle Creek, because to me, that was like another character in the novel, because it's this all central place where you go in. And there is, it's, it's just, there's so many sort of hopes and dreams and uh, conflicts that are all sort of sealed in that chamber. Um, so the first time I saw it myself in my own life, my son was four. And he pointed to it and he said, that's a submarine. And because uh, we had just been watching the Beatles Yellow Submarine for a family movie night. And it looked just like that. It had the four portals and everything. You know, like how in the Yellow Submarine, there are four portals for the four Beatles. Um, and uh, because of the four patients, I don't know what it was. But anyway, so he, and, and except that our submarine was blue, like a baby blue. So he called it our blue submarine. But in any case, so you go in, and because of the oxygen and the risks of, um, you know, flames and things like that, um, our supervisor was very, very vigilant and very careful about not having anything inside. Certainly no electronics, no metals of any type, no shoes, no jewelry, um, not even underwire bras. So there was this tension of, wow, like this is dangerous, This or it could be dangerous, it's risky. And so there's that, and then you go in, and if you're at all claustrophobic, it's just, you know, really uh, not a good place to be in. You have to crawl in, it's dark, um, and there's really nothing to do um, except just talk to each other. And the kids are watching like funny videos and Elmo and things like that through the portal. Um, and just the pressure, and there's so much pressure and hope because all the people who were in there, there were kids in there who couldn't swallow. So they had feeding tubes and they were in wheelchairs and they couldn't speak. And so the hope that something like this might work to improve their conditions and their quality of life for the family was just so great and it was just so intense. It was almost physical, you know, palpable and it, so it, it, so there was the pressure of the oxygen, certainly, but there was the pressure and the pressure of the air pressure, you know, as we were, uh, as they were um, 
pressurizing the chamber, which you could definitely feel in your ears, you know, sort of like when you're on an airplane. But there was all that pressure emotionally, too. Um, so I, I just love that you made that point. Thank you. <laughs> you're very welcome. Um, yeah, and I was, I was also struck by, um, in another interview, you mentioned that a, a mother during one of your sessions in these chambers said something like, if my child had, you know, was, was in the situation your child was, I would just be eating bonbons all day. And then you took that line and you made it a crucial piece of evidence in, in the trial. So I'm mm -hmm. kind of, I'm curious about like what happens when you take the kind of hope and emotion of the space of the hyperbaric chamber and you put it in the other pressurized space of the courtroom, like what happens to those, those little details? Like do they, they, they become something different, right? Oh, they definitely became something different, taking it from real life and then putting it into, you know, fictional context. Um, and, um, you know, it's because somebody did actually say that to me. Oh, I don't remember talking about that before. You, you really, you've done a lot of these, you've done <laughs> my a lot of these interviews. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. I love that. Um, but yeah, so when I took that, and in fact, that line was so important to me and it sort of rated me like so much that it became really important to me and in fact that when i first started this novel i called it bonbons in a blue submarine so that was my first working title so all of my like folders on my pc and whatever that has to do with this novel are all called bonbons <laughs> so that's my little code name for my novel. Um, but yeah, when you put it into a fictional context, certainly it takes um, different, you know, uh, it takes on a different connotation. And I think it became a little more sinister in the context of what happened uh, with respect to the story, certainly. Um, and, and then when you, and then I hope that you saw that, because you do see the scene where the friends are sort of saying this to each other almost in jest at first and then um, how when it becomes part of the court case um, that takes on a diff even more of a darker significance and how things can sort of get twisted from one to the other as different characters view the same line of, you know, uh, dialogue or different piece of evidence or different phone call or whatever it is, as different characters look at it, you see how the perceptions of each um, point of view changes the way that you look at each piece of you know, evidence or line or whatever it is. And then it changes even further when it goes into the courtroom and then it gets sort of contextualized in a different way by the different lawyers and by the two different lawyers and who are trying to sort of use the same piece of evidence for to support their very differing um, theories of the case. And so to me, that's sort of part of the fun of um, getting to explore something like this in real depth is just being able to sort of show that. And, and I have seven different uh, point of view uh, POV characters um, who take turns through different chapters and telling their own versions of the story. And I think that kind of Rashomon type 
um, effect is also something else that I'm really drawn to. Yeah, were there particular books that you kind of thought of as touchstones while you were working on this one? Yeah, totally. So um, probably the first one was Russell Banks, The Sweet Hereafter. Um, I don't know if you've read that or seen the movie, both are excellent. And in the book, and I thought about structuring mine this way, the book is divided into four sections. Um, and so four different characters telling their story as it relates to um, a small town uh, school bus that gets into an accident and nearly all the kids, I think all the kids um, die except, and everyone dies except for the school bus driver maybe, I can't remember, but many, many people die. And it's, so the entire town is, of course, you know, um, in turmoil. And four different characters, the bus driver, um, a student who didn't go to school that day, so therefore survived, even though all of her friends um, did not. Um, the parent of someone who did perish, and then a lawyer who comes in to try to rile up the entire town and suing the school board and things like that. Um, so those four characters sort of take their turn. And so there are four big sections in the novel. And I thought about doing mine that way and for, for a long time because I just love that novel so much. And then the, on the other side of the spectrum, there's um, Mystic River by Dennis Lehane, um, who has, I think, eight POV characters, including one omniscient character who sort of, they flit in and out in scenes even. And so they don't take like neat turns. They sort of come in and out. And, um, and I thought that was another really, really interesting way of doing it. But uh, regard, so I ended up sort of doing a compromise of both where I have seven POV characters, but I have uh, each chapter is only one character. So, you know, and each chapter is clearly labeled. So you know who's speaking and whose point of view this is from. Um, so I sort of did an in between the two that I, the two works that I think I was most influenced by in writing this novel. Hmm. Um, I'm curious, what do you, what do you see the role of the lawyers? How do you see, how do you see the lawyers in this book? Like what is their role? Um, is, is either of them a POV character? I can't remember. No, neither of them is a POV character, so um, we don't really find out about their lives or anything, and, I, and that's intentional. I wanted the, the, um, the characters who speak to us to be the people who were actually involved in the events that led up to everything that happened. Um, and the lawyers, I think, are more sort of conduits for helping to shape the story and the narrative, and also... Um, helping the, the characters to sort of see what justice or lack thereof, you know, is, is how that's present in the legal system today. I have very strong feelings about, you know, how arbitrary some of the stuff can be, including sort of what we uh, attribute blame to when something happens. Um, you know, there are a lot of uh, parts of, um, a lot of moving parts that have to sort of come together in order for a particular tragedy um, to occur in some some senses. And, and I think that um, we as a society have said, okay, person X who did 
you know, the first thing that needs to happen in order for the chain of causation to occur, person X is not, you know, who's in position one is not responsible at all. Whereas person three, you know, who's third in the line of, you know, chain of causation, who does uh, act Y is 100% responsible. And I just don't think it's that clear cut. And I think the lawyers are sort of there to try to convince us and convince each other and convince the, the community at large to believe in this one versus three, you know, kind of um, uh, black or white kind of, you know, uh, story that and narrative that they are trying to get um, get people to believe in. And I just don't think it's all that clear cut. And I think that having the lawyers sort of um, try to make those arguments clarifies, I think, how arbitrary that can be, I hope. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is uh, the kind of the immigrant experience here. So you're talking about these various communities that are involved in this in this horrible event that starts off your novel um, and the family who own the hyperbaric chamber are Korean immigrants um, and in the process of the trial some uh, anti-immigrant sentiment becomes very important um, to the lawyers arguments. Uh, how do you see the kind of immigrant status of these characters playing into the novel and and um, I, you've already kind of mentioned why it was important for you to to write about Korean immigrants, but um, particularly within the structure of this book and your kind of ideas about community and, and truth, how does it, how did, how do having these immigrant characters kind of at the center of this controversy reflect back into those themes? Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there are sort of two different levels, I think. One is sort of at a language and sort of logistical level. And in that level, I think one of the things that we see is how important, especially in, um, in the courtroom setting, um, how important sort of your verbal and oral uh, fluency and mastery can really influence people's perceptions of whether you're telling the truth or whether you're telling a lie and whether you're believable or not. And I think that is such an important thing, not only in the courtroom, but just in society overall. Like people really think that the way that you speak has so much to do with what you're thinking and what your worth is. And um, so I wanted to sort of bring that into the light because one of the um, Korean immigrants has to actually take the stand and he has to do a lot of thinking back and forth about how he phrases things and how he translates his, his thoughts for the benefit of the jury and how long he takes to translate his thoughts. And all of those things become so, so important. So I wanted to sort of point that out a little bit, just this bias that we have as a society for equating intelligence and not only intelligence, but mora like moral behavior and righteousness with uh, linguistic fluency. So that's number one. And then the second thing is their position in this little community that's a rural community that's a very entrenched community and, um, you know, 
and that doesn't see many immigrants and how by virtue of their status as outsiders that might have influenced their actions in a way that drove some of the sort of context of what happened um, leading up to the tragedy. And I think that kind of outsider versus insider mentality that both the community expressed towards the Korean family and that the Korean family began to sort of internalize and feel themselves, I think that, you know, can really drive um, some of the things that you do and don't do and in a way that can really have huge outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to be a little bit you know, sensitive to not giving away spoilers here. So. Yes, I understand. <laughs> Sorry for being a little cryptic, yeah. <laughs> um, you said you had a little uh, selection you wanted to read specifically about oh, sure. immigrants. Yeah, yeah. So this is from, yeah, thank you. This is from a chapter in the middle of the book. Um, and it's uh, from the point of view character of Pak Yu, who is the father um, of the immigrant family. Pak Yu was a different person in English than in Korean. In a way, he supposed, it was inevitable for immigrants to become child versions of themselves, stripped of their verbal fluency and with it, a layer of their competence and maturity. Before moving to America, he prepared himself for the difficulties he knew he'd experience. The logistical awkwardness of translating his thoughts before speaking, the intellectual taxation of figuring out words from context, the physical challenge of shaping his tongue into unfamiliar positions to make sounds that didn't exist in Korean. But what he hadn't known, hadn't expected, was that this linguistic uncertainty would extend beyond speech and, like a virus, infect other parts. His thinking, demeanor, his very personality itself. In Korean, he was an authoritative man, educated and worthy of respect. In English, he was a deaf, mute idiot unsure, nervous, and inept, a uh, pabo. This was the thing he regretted most about their move to America, the shame of becoming less proficient, less adult than his own child. He'd expected this to happen eventually, had seen how children and parents switch places as the parents age, their minds and bodies reverting to childhood, then infancy, then non-being. But not for many years, and certainly not yet, when Mary still had a foot in childhood. In Korea, he had been the teacher, but after his move, when he visited Mary's school, her principal had said, welcome, tell me, how are you liking Baltimore? Huck smiled, nodded, and was deciding how to answer. Perhaps the smile nod had been enough. When Mary said, he loves it here, running the store right by Inner Harbor, right, Dad? The rest of the meeting, Mary continued speaking for him, answering questions directed his way, like a mother with her two-year-old son. That's a beautiful passage. Thank you. Um, do you want to switch gears to kind of our, our little outro now? Or, do, or is there anything oh, sure. else you'd like to yeah. talk about? No, I don't think so. Yeah, okay. outro sounds good. Okay. Um, all right. So I just kind of want to end with um, a little meditation on, on the occupation of writer. Um, I'm curious, what is, what is writing 
look like for you and uh, what does being a writer mean to you? Hmm. Writer, being a writer um, has changed the meaning of it for me. So before I think my book was published, um, it really meant to me just the act of writing, the act of writing every day. Um, and I still think that that's at the core of being a writer. Um, but unfortunately, I think that just because of the business of writing and the business of marketing a book has um, sort of changed it a little bit. And I feel like I became an author more than a writer, and I need to go back to being a writer now that um, I'm really eager to get to real work on my second novel. And the act of being an author, I think, has been really engaging with readers and engaging with booksellers um, and librarians and people like that. Um, and also really engage in being in a community of other writers. And that to me is the one thing out of the business of being an author that I didn't really have before. I didn't have this huge community. I, I did with my own personal group of um, writing groups and things like that. But I really realized more and more how important it is to support other authors and other writers and to support each other in the act of, you know, selling books and making sure that their books are being read um, and being shared with others and um, and really sharing just the angst of, you know, how difficult this whole thing is. Uh, just everything with respect to publishing, not only these days, now it's like impossible, but even <laughs> before um, the pandemic, it was really difficult. And I just realized how valuable that is. And I just, I've come to really treasure that. Yeah, coming out of your writing nook, it's good to have friends around you. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but I do need to go back into the writing nook at some point. <laughs> You've got to strike the balance. Um, yes, absolutely. All right, Angie, my last question, the most important question, what are you reading right now? Oh, I'm reading so, so many things. Um, <laughs> so I'm rereading a bunch of things and I'm also reading some new things. So the new things that I'm reading are um and it's just today's the publication day actually so there are two books that are published today as we're recording this podcast that um i just wanted to shout about so the one that i'm reading right now is anna solomon's the book of v which which just came out today and so i still haven't finished it but um it's a glorious glorious novel about uh, what it's like to be a woman and power and powerlessness. Oh. Because I've already finished reading it is um, called uh, The Imperfect by Amy Meyerson, which is a really wonderful, fun, um, it's, which is a really wonderful, fun um, novel about a diamond, a really rare, precious diamond that has been lost to history, we think. And then all of a sudden it shows up in this grandmother who passes away in her will and in her like 
private stashes. And it's very interesting and fun. Oh, I um, love and that. another book that I'm, oh my God, it's so, and it's, it just came out today. You have to read this book. It's so fun. Um, <laughs> and then another book that I'm in the middle of reading right now is um, uh, The Ancestor by Danielle Trisoni. Um, who I just found out yesterday when the Pilisters were announced, she was apparently the chair of the fiction jury. Who knew? Uh, which I did not know. But in any case, um, so I'm reading. I'm I'm starting that right now. Also. Wow. So you're you're busy. You've got lots going on. Lots of books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's so yeah, it's so fun. But I'm having. Are you having trouble reading? Because I'm having trouble reading these days. I have like six or seven different books that I'm halfway through. Yeah. And haven't been. Yeah, exactly. What? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just, it's just ridiculous. Um, oh, and I am like listening to an audiobook right now. I'm sort of rereading it because I've read it before. Um, is uh, Mary Laura Philpott's, uh, Philpott's uh, I Miss You When I Blink, which is just such a sort of, I don't know, heartwarming wonderful collection of personal essays um of which is just really really insightful and heartwarming and just makes me laugh and i need i need a little bit of that right now yes we all do ah uh, well yeah. thank you so much angie it's been a delight to talk to you um i hope our listeners enjoyed this conversation i think um you know your book is fantastic and i hope they all pick up a copy Yay, thank you so much for having me again. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.